Welcome to another episode of Media Matchmaker, a podcast from the Huntington News. It's been a while, but I'm back and better than ever. This is Hannah Rossman. I am the Media Matchmaker. I am also a third year media and screen studies major here at Northeastern and the audiovisual editor here at Hunt News. For those of you who haven't listened before, on this podcast, I usually help guests find their new favorite movie, book, or TV show by discussing their current favorite piece of media. This weekend, though, is Oscar weekend, so of course we need to discuss it. There is no guest, and instead I will be suggesting media I think you might like based on your favorite 2022 Best Picture nominee. So strap in, this is going to be a very long but very special episode. Before I recommend anything, this is kind of a historic Oscars. So here are some fun facts you can whip out to impress your Oscar-loving friends. I know you don't have any, it's only me, but if you repeat these back to me, I'll be like, wow, I had no idea, thanks. Let's start off with the actors. There is a lot of firsts going on in our acting categories, and I'm psyched about it. First of all, for the first time, there is not one, but two couples nominated for acting Oscars. Javier Bardem was nominated for Best Actor in Being the Ricardos, and his wife, Penelope Cruz, is nominated for Best Actress in Parallel Mothers. At the same time, Kirsten Dunst and Jesse Plemons are also nominated for Best Supporting Actress and Actor, respectively, for The Power of the Dog, where they do play a married couple, so it's kind of cute. Even more importantly, Troy Kotzer was nominated for Best Supporting Actor from CODA, and he is only the second deaf performer to be nominated for an Oscar ever. The first one was Marley Matlin, who plays his wife in CODA and won Best Actress in 1987 for Children of a Lesser God. Other notable acting nominees are Kristen Stewart, who is nominated for Best Actress for playing Princess Diana in Spencer, and Ariana DeBose, who was nominated for Best Supporting Actress for playing Anita in West Side Story. They are both openly queer, making this the first year two openly queer performers have been in the running for acting Oscars. Many openly queer men and women have been nominated and won in behind the scenes categories over the years. This nuance was a little bit confusing for Sam Smith, who wrongly announced himself as the first openly gay Oscar winner when he won the best original song Oscar in 2016. That was kind of embarrassing for him because it was just like, you clearly don't know what you're talking about. That being said though, an openly queer actor has never won an Oscar, so if either of these ladies win, it's a big deal. Of course, we must acknowledge that queer actors have absolutely won these awards before. Some of them include Jodie Foster, Joel Grey, Linda Hunt, Kevin Spacey, Marlon Brando, everyone always forgets he is a bisexual man, and John Gilgood, who actually won Best Supporting Actor, but none of them were out of the closet when they won, so that is the differentiation with Stort and DuBose that makes it kind of exciting. Speaking of Best Actresses, none of the women nominated for Best Actress this year were in Best Picture nominees. Kristen Stewart is the only nominee from Spencer. Jessica Chastain is one of only two nominees from The Eyes of Tammy Faye, as is Penelope Cruz from Parallel Mothers. 
Nicole Kidman from being the Ricardos and Olivia Coleman, who was in The Lost Daughter, are considered the front runners of this category. But each film they were in only received two other nominations. Javier Bardem was nominated for Best Actor and J.K. Simmons for Best Supporting Actor from Being the Ricardos, and Best Adapted Screenplay and Jesse Buckley for Supporting Actress were nominated from The Lost Daughter. The last time none of the Best Actress nominees were in a Best Picture nominee was actually 16 years ago. Reese Witherspoon won for Walk the Line over Judi Dench for Mrs. Henderson Presents, Felicity Huffman for Transamerica, Kira Knightley for Pride and Prejudice, and Charlize Theron for North Country. The Best Picture nominees that year were Crash, which unfortunately won, Brokeback Mountain, Capote, Good Night and Good Luck, and Munich. None of these films even had female leads, so there was like not an opportunity for any Best Actress nominees to come out of them. This year though, Coda, Licorice Pizza, and West Side Story all had lead female performances. That being said, Alana Haim from Licorice Pizza is only 30 years old, and Rachel Zegler from West Side Story and Amelia Jones from Coda are both only 20, which is younger than me, so deeply upsetting. And all three of these were their first leading roles, so it kind of makes sense that none of them were nominated, but still quite notable. And last but most certainly not least, we must discuss Mr. Denzel Washington. He earned his 10th nomination overall this year and 7th nomination for Best Actor for playing Macbeth in The Tragedy of Macbeth. He is the most nominated Black actor in Oscars history. Unfortunately, his only Best Actor win was in 2002 for Training Day, although he also won the Best Supporting Actor Award for Glory in 1990. This might be his third win. I would be excited for it. I thought his performance was phenomenal. If you would like to see him doing a very different Shakespeare film though, you might want to check out Kenneth Branagh's 1993 Much Ado About Nothing, where he plays a very mischievous Don Pedro. You probably already saw this in like your high school English class, but if you haven't, it's kind of fun to check out. I don't know, if you like Shakespeare, it's definitely different than his Macbeth performance though, so keep an open mind. And now let's move on to the directors. Speaking of longevity, Steven Spielberg earned his eighth Best Director nomination for West Side Story, making him the only director with nominations that span six decades. His first nomination for Best Director was in 1977 for Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and all of them are honestly well-deserved. I would not take any of his nominations away from him. Moving on to even more delightful directors, at least in my opinion. Jane Campion, who did have a bit of a snafu recently involving the Williams sisters, but we're gonna look past that. She became the first female director to ever be nominated twice for Best Director. Her first nomination was for 1994's The Piano, and although she didn't win that award, she did receive the Best Original Screenplay Award that night, which is a pretty big deal as well. 
If she wins, she'll be only the third woman in 94 years to attain this honor, which is kind of crazy. The first two are Catherine Bigelow for The Hurt Locker in 2008, and Chloe Zhao just last year for Nomadland. So hopefully we're getting to lucky number three this year. Oh, and speaking of Kenneth Branagh, as I was a couple minutes ago, his film Belfast earned seven nominations, and he received his second Best Director nomination after Henry V. Also being nominated are Best Original Screenplay and Best Picture for Belfast, making him the first person in Oscar history to be nominated in seven different categories. They are, listen closely now, I will quiz you on this, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor, Best Live Action Short Film, didn't know about that one, was surprised to hear it, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Original Screenplay, and Best Picture. So hats off to you, Mr. Branagh. I may reveal that I don't support all of these nominations equally, but it is still an impressive feat. And now, moving on to some impressive international films. Flea, an animated documentary that is in a variety of languages, including Danish, Swedish, Norwegian, Russian, and Dari, is the first film to be nominated in Best Documentary Feature, Best International Feature, and Best Animated Feature. I highly recommend this movie. It made me cry. It made me laugh. It was beautiful. I really can't recommend it highly enough. I know that, at least for me, Best Documentary Feature and Best International Feature are often towards the back of my list in terms of priority, but when it's both, you gotta check it out. And this one's so good, it would be a shame to miss it. If you have seen this and you did like it, I will slip in a quick recommendation for the 2008 Israeli film, Waltz with Bashir. It was written, produced, and directed by Ari Folman and is a visual memoir of his experience as a soldier in the 1982 Lebanon War. It is also an animated documentary in a way, so if you were into that in Flea, you might be into it here. It's also a really great and beautiful and moving film. And now moving on to Drive My Car. Drive My Car earned nominations for Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best International Feature, and most importantly, Best Picture, making it the first Japanese film to be nominated in more than even one category. Also, both Drive My Car and Coda, which is also nominated for Best Picture, heavily utilize sign language, although Drive My Car features Korean sign language and Coda features American sign language. Never before have two films simultaneously been nominated for Best Picture that included sign language. Past Best Picture nominees including sign language have been The Sound of Metal just last year, There Will Be Blood, Jerry Maguire, albeit very briefly, I had to look this up, I did not know about that, and as we mentioned before, Children of a Lesser God. That's kind of the er text of American sign language in film. But I honestly had never seen Korean sign language depicted before, so Drive My Car was really eye-opening in that way. So before we get to my recommendations, I just wanted to mention something else. It is not really a fun fact, but it is something that I like to point out when I see it. So I have to tell you guys that it is a big year for my favorite topic, at least right now. I don't know 
what's going on in my head, but I'm obsessed with representation of parental burden. First and foremost, The Lost Daughter, which earned nominations for Adapted Screenplay, Best Actress, and Best Supporting Actress, is literally all about the burden of children and what mothers owe to their children. Not since the hours have we seen such a beautiful portrayal of how terrible and miserable and life-ruining motherhood can be. The Tragedy of Macbeth, which was nominated for Best Actor, Best Cinematography, and Best Production Design, highlights the Macbeth's infertility so deftly that I could not help but be like, how did I not see these themes in the text before? Light spoiler here, so skip ahead if you wish, but one of the inciting incidents of Dry My Car is the death of the protagonist's child, so parenthood and the pain there is definitely coming up. More in Best Picture, Belfast, Coda, King Richard, and most surprisingly for me, Dune, all present very complex parent-child relationships. I'm not sure that any of these movies really have anything new or surprising to say about parenthood, but we still love to see them. And my favorite, actually, The Power of the Dog, completely turns the concept of parental burden on its head and instead focuses on the child's burden and what children owe to their parents, especially their mothers, which I could watch a hundred movies on. Okay, now let's get into it. There are 10 Best Picture nominees. I am going to share them in order of how much I like them. We will be going with my least favorite first and building to the climax of my favorite Best Picture nominee. I'm going to try and keep my descriptions of the films and my recommendations short and sweet because there are 10 and that is a lot. Normally I am giving recommendations for one film. But let's go. First, and absolutely the worst in my opinion, we have King Richard. It is written by Zach Balin, who received a Best Original Screenplay nomination and directed by Reynaldo Marcus Green. It stars Will Smith, who was nominated for the Best Actor Oscar, as Richard Williams, the father and coach of tennis goddesses Venus and Serena Williams, who interestingly are executive producers on the film. Sanaya Sidney plays a young Venus, while Demi Singleton plays the young Serena, and Anjane Ellis, who was nominated for Best Supporting Actress, plays their mother. The film was also nominated for Best Editing and Best Original Song, which is kind of a bop by Beyonce, so maybe an award lies in its wake there if nowhere else. I did not like this movie, but I understand that other people do. I am not a sports movie woman. I am also not a biopic woman. So this was a rough sell for me before it even began. I also just don't love this mode of Tiger Dad Will Smith. It doesn't interest me. You know, I've seen it before in After Earth where he did it with his own son. I'm sure there are others I'm not thinking of. I did not need this movie. That being said, if you liked it, it's a tennis biopic. I thought, what are other tennis biopics? Of course, Battle of the Sexes, the 2017 sports drama directed by Valerie Ferris and Jonathan Dayton and written by Simon Beaufoy. The plot is loosely based on the 1973 tennis match between Billie Jean King, who is played by Emma Stone, and Bobby Riggs, who is played by Steve Carell. 
It is about how, like the Williams sisters, King had to work twice as hard as other tennis players to succeed in the very white, very straight, very boys clubby sport. I actually did enjoy this, even though I normally am not into tennis or any sport biopics. Check it out. See if you're into it. It is available to stream for free on the Roku channel. I also, despite not liking this film, have to call out another film because it is just so weirdly similar to King Richard. It is Will Smith also doing an accent to play a real person, and it's about sports. So really, I had to bring it up, even though I hate this movie perhaps even more than I hate King Richard. It is Concussion, the 2015 drama written and directed by Peter Landsman. It is based on the 2009 expose Game Brain, by Jean-Marie Laskus. Will Smith here plays Dr. Bennett Omalu, a forensic pathologist who fights against the NFL, who are trying to suppress his research on chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or as it is better known, CTE, that is suffered by professional football players. I saw this movie in theaters. I don't know why I paid money for it. I think I literally fell asleep at one point. But I also almost fell asleep during King Richard, so maybe I just don't get these movies. And if you liked King Richard, because I know a lot of people did, maybe you're going to like Concussion too. It is available to stream for free on Peacock or rent on any other streaming service. Next up, we have Don't Look Up, which really is also just as bad as <laughs> King Richard, just in a different way, in my opinion. It is written and directed by Adam McKay, who was nominated for Best Original Screenplay. Personally, I find the screenplay to be terrible and stupid and way too long and boring, so I don't know why he was nominated for that. It is about an approaching comet that will destroy human civilization, except it's supposed to be an allegory for climate change. I could not help but think while watching, does Adam McKay understand climate change? Because this allegory does not make sense. So I don't think it's very good. A lot of people watched it because it is available on Netflix, and there are some jokes, which is cute. We like when there's some comedy going on in our best picture race, but this was not it for me. I will say it has a killer cast. It stars Leonardo DiCaprio, Jennifer Lawrence, and Rob Morgan as scientists slash government people attempting to warn citizens about the impending comet. Tyler Perry and Kate Blanchett play unresponsive cable news hosts. Meryl Streep plays an unresponsive Trump-like president. And Jonah Hill plays her deeply annoying son slash chief of staff. I guess he is doing what is needed in the film, but I still did not enjoy it. Mark Rylance plays another unresponsive person, but in this case, a billionaire tech CEO. And then we have Timothy Chalamet and Ron Perlman as the punk and racist comedic relief, respectively. You know, punk, racism, the two poles of comedy, of course. It was also nominated for Best Editing and Best Original Score from Nicholas Bertel. I do have to support his nomination because he wrote the Succession theme song and I will adore him forever for that. Beyond that though, it's a dud. Skip her. If you did like it though, here are some recommendations. I don't begrudge you, I just disagree. 
First of all, if you're into the whole end of the world, specifically due to climate change kind of vibe, let me point you in the direction of The Day After Tomorrow. This is a 2004 Roland Emmerich joint that is the subject of our last episode. So just pop back in the feed and listen to that. It is available for free with an HBO Max subscription. Staying in this vibe, uh, maybe you already watched The Day After Tomorrow because you listened to our last episode. Okay, what about 2012? This is a 2009 Roland Emmerich joint that is also about climate change events ending humanity. This one is more specifically focused on if those events were to happen in 2012, and there's also more of a focus on evil elites, which Don't Look Up is pretty into, so perhaps that's even more relevant. It is rentable on all streaming services, so check her out. Now, let's say we are buying into the argument that Don't Look Up is political satire. I feel compelled to recommend an actual political satire, Uh, and the best there is, in my opinion, is Wag the Dog. It is a political, very black comedy written by Hilary Henkin and David Mamet. There was apparently a very contentious credit issue between them, and we could do a whole other podcast on that issue, but it was directed by Barry Levinson. It is based on the 1993 novel American Hero by Larry Bainhart. It stars Robert De Niro as a Washington spin doctor, think Olivia Pope kind of vibes, and Dustin Hoffman as a Hollywood producer who are tasked with fabricating a war in Albania to distract voters from a presidential sex scandal. Hoffman received a nomination for the Oscar for Best Actor, and screenwriters David Mamet and Hilary Henkin were nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay. This movie is a gem. Even if you didn't like Don't Look Up, watch it, because you will be like, whoa, this is what Don't Look Up wanted to be and failed at being. I, after I watched Don't Look Up, needed to just pop it in just to sort of soothe my soul. It is a David Mamet movie, so expect profanity, but it's all in good fun. This is rentable from all streaming services, so do not wait to check it out. Next up, we have Belfast, which was written and directed by Kenneth Branagh. He was nominated for Oscars for both writing and directing this film. It is also a semi-autobiographical retelling of his childhood, so we know Oscars love that. This is honestly one of the front runners to win. I clearly hope it does not because I didn't really care for it. That being said, I, I can't begrudge it. It was fine. I didn't hate it. I just didn't really care. It is the story of a young boy named Buddy, great name, who is played by Jude Hill, and his family who live in Belfast, Northern Ireland at the beginning of the Troubles, which is the Northern Ireland conflict. It also stars Katrina Balfe and Jamie Dornan as Buddy's parents, and Judy Dench and Kieran Hines as his grandparents. Both of the older actors were nominated in the supporting categories for their performances, so we might see a win for one of them. It was also nominated for Best Sound and Best Original Song, which happens to be by Van Morrison. Wow. Love when the anti-vaxxers sneak into the Oscars. 
So perhaps you liked this movie because of its portrayal of the Troubles. The Troubles are an interesting moment. So if that's you, I would like to recommend The Crying Game. This is a 1992 thriller that was written and directed by Neil Jordan. It stars Stephen Ray as a member of the IRA who forms an unexpected bond with a kidnapped British soldier who is played by Forrest Whitaker. He eventually flees to London and hides out with Forrest Whitaker's girlfriend, Dill, who is played by Jay Davidson. But of course, he is hounded by his former IRA colleagues who want him to assassinate someone. And he, of course, also begins a romantic relationship with Dill. But then, surprise, and this is a spoiler, but this movie is almost 30 years old, so deal with it. Dill is transgender. Oh no, complications ensue. Honestly, it's better to know that going in so that you are less annoyed by them trying to use it as like a twist, but it does make for an interesting portrayal of this time period. It won the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay and was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Editing, Best Actor for Stephen Ray, and Best Supporting Actor for Jay Davidson. It is free to stream with a Showtime subscription or rentable on Amazon. Let's say, though, you do not care about the Troubles at all, and you really liked Belfast because it is a director commenting on a major conflict in his home country through the lens of his childhood. That sounds very specific, but don't worry, just four years ago there was another one. And that is Roma. Personally, I think it was a better example of this than Belfast, but opinions vary. It is a drama written and directed by Alfonso Caron as an ode to his childhood caretaker. Yelizia Apricio stars as the indigenous live-in housekeeper and nanny of a middle-class family in the Colonia Roma neighborhood of Mexico City. Marina de Tavira co-stars as the mother of the family. Aparicio and De Tavira were nominated for Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress Oscars, respectively, both very well deserved. It was also nominated for Best Picture, Best Original Screenplay, Best Production Design, Best Sound Editing, and Best Sound Mixing. That was when the sound categories were separate, now they are together. And it won the Oscars for Best Foreign Language Film, which is now Best International Feature, Best Cinematography, and Best Director. For Alfonso Caron. Perhaps Belfast will follow a similar trajectory with Branagh as its director. It is available to stream on Netflix and I would recommend. So next we have another Oscar favorite director. It is Nightmare Alley, which was written and directed by Guillermo del Toro, whose previous film, The Shape of Water, won Best Picture. This neo-noir showcases the desolate and the decadent of the 1940s. It stars Bradley Cooper as a charming carnival clairvoyant who decides to take his act on the road to polite society and teams up with a psychologist femme fatale who is played by Kate Blanchett. 
she's back. And together they attempt to pull a clairvoyant con on a wealthy man. It's all very convoluted in my opinion. Tony Collette, Willem Dafoe, Rooney Mara, Ron Perlman, also in Don't Look Up, he and Kate Blanchett, I guess, are just going from movie to movie together, killing it. And last but not least, David Strathairn play Carnies in the very tonally distinct first half of the film. Kate Blanchett does not appear until the second half of the film, and it's kind of her and Bradley Cooper, whereas the first half is like all the Carnies and Bradley Cooper, so it's a little disjointed. I didn't love it. I do love noir, so I loved what it was trying to do, but I don't know. Apparently there's a black and white release of it that maybe I would vibe with more, just because it would look more noirish. But that being said, it was nominated for Best Production Design, Best Cinematography, and Best Costume Design, so it was clearly a delight to look at with the colors. It just felt a little tonally messy, since it was trying to be a very classic noir movie, despite it not being a classic noir movie and it being made in 2022. Honestly, this was the hardest movie to think of recommendations for because nothing is like this movie. It's the weirdest noir I've ever seen. It gives the femme fatale a little bit of agency, but not so much that she actually affects the plot. Neither she nor the protagonist die. And although Bradley Cooper's protagonist is certainly punished for his misdeeds, it is not in the classic way that film noir protagonists are normally punished. I will say, my favorite part was the ending. So stick with it until the end, even though the middle sags a little bit in my opinion. So beyond telling you just to watch the 1947 version of Nightmare Alley, which was directed by Edmund Golding and starred Tyrone Power, I'm just going to recommend another unusual noir. It also gives the femme fatale a little bit of agency, and it does allow both her and the protagonist to survive, but still severely punishes them for their faults. So it feels related in that way, even though this is not really a similar vibe. But I'm going to recommend the 1950 Nicholas Ray film In a Lonely Place. Humphrey Bogart stars as Dixon Steele, a washed up Hollywood screenwriter. I know, that name is amazing. I wish it were my name. We must move on though. He quickly begins a flirtation with his neighbor, who is played by Gloria Graham, just as he becomes a suspect in a murder. Dixon's PTSD from his time in World War II, as well as the ongoing murder investigation, challenges their blooming relationship. It is also the source of the very sexy quote, I was born when she kissed me. I died when she left me. I lived a few weeks while she loved me. I really like that, so. Anyway, you should check out this film. It can be found for free on Amazon or Crackle. I don't want to give away too much about it, but if you saw Nightmare Alley and were like, maybe I like noir, what's up with that? Where should I start? This is a good place for you to start. And then you can check out my Letterboxd for the rest of my favorite noir movies because I'm kind of a noir woman. So next we have a very different movie, really nothing like Nightmare Alley at all. We have Coda, a film written and directed by Sean Hedder, who was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay for writing it. It stars Amelia Jones as the eponymous Coda, which stands for Child of Death Adults. 
she is the only hearing member of a deaf family and the film follows her as she struggles to balance her responsibility to her family with her own aspirations. Troy Kotzer, who we mentioned before, was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Marley Matlin and Daniel Durant play her family. They are all deaf and they all turn in really beautiful performances, as does Amelia Jones. It is classic, almost rote, heartwarming, coming-of-age tale, but it works. I cried. I'm not ashamed to admit it. Joni Mitchell's music is great in it. I don't know. I was tentative to watch it because it sounded like heartwarming bullshit, and it is, but you might still want to watch it. You might like it. So what could I recommend in terms of coming of age stories? The options were so many, but I decided to focus on a recent one where the main tension is where they will go to college slash them leaving their family behind. That is none other than Lady Bird, the 2017 coming-of-age dramedy written and directed by Greta Gerwig. Saoirse Ronan plays the central Lady Bird, a high school senior who is dealing with a strained relationship with her mother, who is played by Laurie Metcalf. It also co-stars Tracy Letts as her dad, as well as Beanie Feldstein as her best friend, and Lucas Hedges and Timothy Chalamet as two potential love interests who she does not need. She has no time for them. It earned Oscar nominations for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, Best Actress, and Best Supporting Actress for Ronan and Metcalf, respectively. It is available on Netflix. It is a gem of a film. If you liked Coda, you are going to like this movie, so please check it out. And then I have another recommendation that honestly is very tonally different, but it is also about musicians in the deaf community. And I was like, wow, that's some weird synchronicity going on. That is The Sound of Metal, which is a 2019 drama that was written and directed by Darius Martyr. It stars Riz Ahmed as a metal drummer and recovering addict who begins to lose his hearing. It also features Olivia Cook as his girlfriend and bandmate, and Paul Racy playing an older deaf recovering alcoholic who runs a shelter for deaf addicts. It won Oscars for Best Sound and Best Editing. The sound is really next level, the way that it portrays the loss of hearing and the way that you can begin to rehear using cochlear implants, but how it is so different from natural hearing was so fascinating, and its use of music was also just so beautiful, much like Coda. It was also nominated for Oscars for Best Picture, Best Original Screenplay, Best Actor, and Best Supporting Actor for Ahmed and Racy, respectively. It is available to stream on Amazon Prime. You might not necessarily like this just because you liked Coda, but still give it a try. Maybe if you didn't like Coda, you are more likely to like this movie actually, but I loved it. It has a very special place in my heart. Next up, we have the epic Dune. It was directed and co-written by Denis Villeneuve, who directed one of my favorite films, Arrival. He was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay for his work on this film. 
it is the first of a two-part adaptation of the 1965 novel by Frank Herber, so it is not a complete story, which is perhaps why it did not earn more nominations, although it did for sure earn a lot, but the next part should be coming out in October this year. Keep your eyes open, we'll see what happens. It follows Paul Atreides, who is played by Timothy Chalamet as his family, the House of Atreides, is thrust into a war for control of the powerful mineral known as spice, which is harvested from the deadly desert Arrakis. The rest of the very large ensemble cast includes Rebecca Ferguson and Oscar Isaac as Paul's parents, Stellan Skarsgård as the leader of their rival house, the House of Harkonnen, and Dave Bautista as the Harkonnen military leader. Josh Brolin and Stephen McKinley Henderson both play military leaders from the House of Atreides, while Jason Momoa plays Duncan Idaho, perhaps the greatest name in all of film history, the swordmaster of the House of Atreides. I guess he is very good at swords. I don't understand what that role means. And I saw the movie, so I don't know. However, there is also Javier Bardem and Zendaya who play Freemen, which is the tribe that is native to Arrakis and eventually ends up working with Paul to overthrow the evil Harkonnens. Sharon Duncan Brewster also plays a Freeman who is an imperial judge sent to oversee the House of Atreides' taking over of spice production on Arrakis. And last but absolutely not least, Charlotte Rampling plays a Bene Gesserit reverend mother, which is essentially an order of space nuns that Rebecca Ferguson, as Paul's mother, is a member of. They can control people and also predict the futures. It's kind of a Jedi vibe. I don't really know, but I love it. She kills this movie, as does Rebecca Ferguson. HBO Max is actually producing a spin-off series, Dune The Sisterhood, which is specifically about the Bene Gesserit. So that is exciting and something I will be keeping my eyes peeled for. This movie was also nominated for original score, cinematography, editing, sound, production design, costume design, makeup, and hairstyling, as well as visual effects. That totals 10 nominations, the second most of any movie this year. So clearly, people were impressed. I was also impressed, although I am much more interested to see how Denis Villeneuve ends this saga, because it really is a saga. This is not the first film adaptation of Dune. David Lynch adapted it in 1984. I love David Lynch, so obviously I had to check it out. It fits the whole plot of the book into one film, making it quite a whirlwind, which is really the opposite of this recent Dune, which is very paced and it takes its time. It's not in a rush. The David Lynch version, though, starred Kyle MacLachlan as Paul Atreides and Sting as a character that does not even exist in this first half of the plot. So also interested to see who they cast in that role because Sting is a tough act to follow, obviously. I do recommend checking it out just because it's interesting to see the differences between it and this more recent adaptation. It is available for free with a Starz subscription or to rent on Amazon. So what should I recommend for this, I thought? Well, this sounds a bit obvious, but hear me out. Star Wars. Yes, watch Star Wars. 
You clearly like space operas if you like Dune. You have probably actually already seen Star Wars if you liked Dune. Star Wars, of course, is created by George Lucas. It originated with the first movie in 1977. Since then, there have been eight other main movies, plus some other movies, and many TV shows, and comic books, and a whole expanded universe. Just like Dune, there is a lot to get into, a lot to think about, a lot of lore and world building. So honestly, I don't even know why I'm recommending it. You already know Star Wars. But there are other space operas out there. One you might not know about, Battlestar Galactica, 1978, plus many iterations, including a forthcoming Peacocks show. Another good one, Star Trek. Kind of obvious also, but I personally only recently came to know of Star Trek. I mean, I knew of it, but I had not seen any part of it. It started in 1966, but since then there have been more movies and TV shows than I can count. Currently there is Picard, which has been running on Paramount+, Plus, formerly known as CBS All Access, since 2020. Along with that, there are two animated shows called Lower Decks and Prodigy, which are further riffing on the Star Trek universe, also on Paramount+. Plus. That's a vast one you can really sink your teeth into. But my number one space opera recommendation has to be Stargate. Also a Roland Emmerich film. Really into recommending his stuff today for some reason. I don't know what's up with that. It is a 1994 story that has been added to and expanded on with a lot of comic books and some other stuff and little mini series like Stargate SG-1. I don't even know what that's about. I have not seen it, but I am not really a completist with my space operas. I am more of a dip my toe into one movie and then pop out. But if you are a completist, there's a lot to dig into with Stargate. The original movie has a very simple plot. A professor teams up with the military to unravel the code of a Stargate, which is an interesting teleportation device that takes them to an ancient Egypt-like world that is ruled by the malevolent god Ra. It stars James Spader as the professor and Kurt Russell as one of the military men, as well as Jay Davidson, master shapeshifter who we talked about in The Crying Game. Here he is playing a literal god instead of just a mere woman, so even bigger transformations. Honestly, these are kind of his two biggest movies but it's kind of fun that I got to bring him up twice in this episode. It is available on Netflix. I think it is a delightful sci-fi romp, and I think if you are feeling the complex world building of Dune, you're gonna feel the kind of complex world building of Stargate. Next up, we have West Side Story, very different than Dune. It is directed by Steven Spielberg, who was nominated for Best Directing, and the script was adapted by Tony Kushner, who I think was severely snubbed in the Adapted Screenplay category. He adapted it from the 1957 musical that was created by Leonard Bernstein, Stephen Sondheim, Arthur Lawrence, and Jerome Robbins, which is itself a loose adaptation of Romeo and Juliet. 
1961 film adaptation, which was co-directed by Robert Wise and Robbins, starred Natalie Wood and Richard Boehmer. It was nominated for 11 Oscars and won 10 of them, including Best Picture. So there are big shoes to fill for this West Side Story. I guess it is similar to Dune in that it is a remake of an earlier film. This version stars Ansel Elgort and Rachel Zegler as the doomed lovers, with Ariana DeBose, David Alvarez, and Mike Feist as their respective clan members. They act alongside god of stage and screen Rita Moreno, who won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actress for playing Anita in the 1961 version. Ariana DeBose was nominated this year for playing that same role, so perhaps that indicates a win for her. It was also nominated for Best Cinematography, Best Production Design, Best Costume Design, and Best Sound, and if there were a Best Choreography Oscar, it would have it in the bag, because this is beautifully sung, beautifully shot, but most of all, beautifully danced. Recommendations for this were incredibly easy. This is a picture of the Latino community in New York. It is also a musical. It also came out last year. Sadly, it did not get any Oscar nominations of its own, but if you liked West Side Story, you are going to love In the Height. It was directed by John M. Chu from a screenplay by Kiera Alegria Yudes, based on the stage musical of the same name by Yudes and Lin-Manuel Miranda, who was nominated this year for his song Dos Origuitas from Encanto, which is his bid for an EGOT. It tells the stories of the Dominican Washington Heights neighborhood of Upper Manhattan in New York City as the residents strive towards their dreams and aspirations. It stars Anthony Ramos, Corey Hawkins, Leslie Grace, Melissa Barrera, Olga Meredes, Daphne Rubin Vega, Gregory Diaz IV, and Jimmy Smits making his musical debut, perhaps? I had never seen him in a musical before, and he's kind of good at singing, so good for him. It is available to watch on HBO Max, and it's just, you know, it's a classic musical. If you don't like musicals, don't watch it, but if you liked West Side Story, you probably like musicals. I also cannot help but throw in a recommendation if you were not interested in the musical aspects of West Side Story, but you were more interested in the gang elements and perhaps specifically the use of rumbles as plot devices. I certainly was. I love a good rumble. And that is why I would recommend The Outsiders. It is a 1983 coming-of-age drama that was directed by Francis Ford Coppola and written by Kathleen Rowell. It was adapted from the 1967 novel of the same name, by S.C. Hinton. You may have read this in middle school or high school, perhaps, for English class. The movie is kind of good. It's the story of a scrappy teenage gang in rural Oklahoma, and also, like West Side Story, centers a deadly rumble with their rival gang. It stars a lot of up-and-comers of that era. C. Thomas Howell, Rob Lowe, Emilio Estevez, Matt Dillon, Tom Cruise, Patrick Swayze, and Ralph Macchio. So if you're interested in 80s hunks, watch The Outsiders. If you're interested in rumbles, also watch The Outsiders. It is rentable from all streaming services, and it's a fun time. 
And now we are reaching our top three nominees. Yes, you are reaching towards the end. Don't worry. My number three movie that was nominated for Best Picture this year is Licorice Pizza. This is an episodic coming of age in the San Fernando Valley tale that was written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, who was nominated for Oscars for writing and directing the film. Alana Haim stars as Alana Kane, a 25-year-old photographer's assistant who is shrinking from responsibility and adulthood. She does not know what she wants to do with her life. And then she meets Cooper Hoffman, the son of the late great Philip Seymour Hoffman, who was one of Paul Thomas Anderson's most frequent collaborators before his death. He plays Gary Valentine, a high school freshman who is trying to get his child actor career back on track when he meets and falls in love with Alana. This is really an episodic hangout movie that jumps from tableau to tableau, but Alana Haim and Cooper Hoffman carry it through everything. It is not necessarily a romantic relationship, although the movie does end with her telling him that she loves him. Spoiler, sorry. But it is more about friends and growing up. The very fun and sometimes funny little scenes include cameos from Sean Penn, Tom Waits, Bradley Cooper, Benny Safdie, Nate Mann, Joseph Cross, John Michael Higgins, who is playing a very racist Japanese restaurant owner, as well as Maya Rudolph, who I just learned is married to Paul Thomas Anderson. That blew my mind as well as Harriet Sansom Harris, whose character is my role model in life. If you have seen it, you know what I'm saying. And last but not least, Skylar Gizondo, who I am only a little obsessed with. I am actually a lot obsessed with him. He was in the Santa Clarita Diet and the Righteous Gemstones. I kind of want to marry him. It's okay, I'm taking deep breaths. And they're just, they're just hanging out in Hollywood and it's kind of cute. This is definitely not my favorite Paul Thomas Anderson project, but I could not help but be a little bit smitten with the charming characters and the good vibes. It's just a good vibe. So I thought, what is a good vibe of a movie? Uh, there, there are a lot of coming-of-age vibey movies, but my mind popped over to king of the coming-of-age, Cameron Crowe, and his 2000 coming-of-age romance, Almost Famous. It is a semi-autobiographical story of a teenage journalist played by Patrick Fugit, who cons his way into writing for Rolling Stone in the early 1970s, and his attempt to write a cover story for a fictitious rock band called Stillwater, which is coincidentally also the name of a movie with Matt Damon and Abigail Breslin that came out this year, but received no Oscar nominations because it is bad. I digress. In Almost Famous, Kate Hudson plays the main character's groupie love interest, who is ingeniously named Penny Lane, while Frances McDormand plays his mother. Both of them were nominated for Best Supporting Actress Oscars, although sadly neither of them won. Billy Crudup and Jason Lee also star as members of Stillwater. And if you loved Cooper Hoffman in Licorice Pizza, you are going to die for the admittedly very few scenes, but he makes them count, that Philip Seymour Hoffman has as the young journalist's mentor. 
I mean, like everything he does, he blows them out of the park. He was one of our greatest actors. Just watching Cooper Hoffman made me emotional, thinking about the little quirks of his dad that I see in him. So any movie with Philip Seymour Hoffman, I always recommend to watch. But if you loved Cooper Hoffman, you're really gonna like Philip Seymour Hoffman in this one. Along with the Supporting Actress nominations, the Oscars also nominated Almost Famous for Best Editing and gave Crow his first and only win for Best Original Screenplay. It is free to stream on Hulu, so race on over to check her out. And now, runner-up, honestly, it was my number one until last week, but then it was unseated by number one, which you will probably be able to guess. But here it is. The Power of the Dog, written and directed by Jane Campion, who was nominated for directing and writing Oscars for it. It is based on the Thomas Savage novel from 1967 of the same name. It stars Benedict Cumberbatch, Kirsten Dunst, Jesse Plemons, and Cody Smith-McPhee, all of whom were nominated for acting Oscars for their roles. It takes place in 1925 Montana, where wealthy ranch-owning George Burbank, who is played by Plemons, meets widow and inn-owner Rose Gordon, who is played by Kirsten Dunst. They quickly get married, but George's volatile cowboy brother Phil, played by Cumberbatch, instantly takes a dislike to Rose and her effeminate teenage son Peter, who is played by Smith McPhee. As Phil's cruelty begins to unravel Rose, he softens on Peter, and they build an unlikely bond that leads to a surprising ending. That is all I will say for the moment. It is also nominated for Best Cinematography, Best Editing, Best Sound, Best Production Design, and Best Original Score, totaling 12 Oscars, the most of any movie at this ceremony. So to recommend this movie, I must give a little bit of a spoiler. If you would not like to have Power of the Dog spoiled for you, skip ahead. But if you saw Power of the Dog and you loved the homosocial bonding that leads to murder, you might think, I know what she's going to say, it's Brokeback Mountain. It's Ang Lee's 2004 romantic western Brokeback Mountain. Obviously, the homosocial bonding that leads to the homosexual sex that leads to the murder of Jake Gyllenhaal's character. But no, I'm not gonna. I am going to recommend The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. This 2007 revisionist western was written and directed by Andrew Dominic. It was adapted from Ron Hansen's 1983 novel of the same title, and it stars Brad Pitt as the famous outlaw Jesse James. The film dramatizes his real-life relationship with Robert Ford, who is played by Casey Affleck, and focuses on the events that lead up to the titular killing. Sam Rockwell plays Robert's brother and fellow member of the James gang, as well as his accomplice to the murder. The relationships between these three men are wrought with the same need that Cumberbatch's character in Power the Dog has to prove their masculinity through cruelty and even violence. Affleck was nominated for Best Supporting Actor, as well as the film's cinematography by Roger Deakins. It is rentable from all streaming services. If you like Power the Dog, I think you will like this movie. I certainly did. It is all about masculinity, all about homosocial bonds, and gets wrapped up with a nice little tidy murder. So who doesn't love that? And now last, but absolutely not least, my perhaps favorite movie of the year, Drive My Car. 
This was written and directed by, and this is where I really need to ask for forgiveness for my pronunciations, uh, Ryusaki Hamaguchi, who was nominated for Oscars for his writing and directing of the film. It is based on Haruki Marakumi's short story of the same title from his 2004 collection, Men Without Women. It also takes inspiration from other Marakami stories, though. It stars Hidetoshi Nishijima as an acclaimed actor and director who is grappling with the death of his screenwriter wife, played by Reika Kirishima. While directing a multilingual production of Chekhov's Uncle Vanya in Hiroshima, he begins to heal through conversations with a young woman, played by Toko Miura, who has been hired by the theater company to drive him between his hotel and rehearsals. It is the first Japanese film to be nominated for Best Picture, and I hope also the first Japanese film to win Best Picture, although I think it is unlikely, as it is also nominated for Best International Feature and is likely to win that award instead. If you saw this movie and said, yes, I love movies about a director struggling with grief and guilt over his dead wife, you should look no further than Inception. You've probably already seen it, but maybe you should rewatch it because maybe you forgot about the grief and guilt and directing that happens in the film because you were so distracted by the time and space bending visual effects. This 2010 action movie was written and directed by Christopher Nolan. It stars Leonardo DiCaprio as a professional thief who steals information by infiltrating the subconscious of his targets. He gathers a team including Ken Watanabe, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Elliot Page, Tom Hardy, and Dilip Rao to pull off his greatest dream heist yet on the unsuspecting Cillian Murphy. But his guilt over the suicide of his wife, played by Marion Cotillard, who used to be his dream-jumping partner in crime, threatens to upend the mission. I subscribe to the belief that I think most watchers of this film do, that this film is an ingenious allegory for the creation of a film, which is nothing if not supplanting ideas into the audience's subconsciouses. So I cannot help but see the creative and emotional similarities between DiCaprio's character here and Hidetoshi Nishijima's character in Drive My Car. Inception won Oscars for Best Cinematography, Best Sound Editing, Best Sound Mixing, and Best Visual Effects, as well as being nominated for Best Picture, Best Original Screenplay, Best Art Direction, and Best Original Score. It is available for free with an HBO Max subscription, so maybe it's worth a rewatch. I might be rewatching it soon, honestly. If you don't really care about all the emotional nuances and you were just interested in Drive My Car for its portrayal of how hard putting on a play is, then you need to look no further than Noises Off. This is a 1992 comedy that was directed by Peter Bogdanovich with a screenplay by Marty Kaplan. It is based on the 1982 play of the same name by Michael Frayn. Everything that can go wrong does go wrong in this hilarious depiction of the behind the scenes chaos of trying to put on a show. The ensemble cast includes Michael Caine, who also has a small part in Inception, as is mandated by the blackmail I'm sure he must have on Christopher Nolan. Some synchronicity here with my recommendations. But beyond him, there is also the comedic genius Carol Burnett, Christopher Reeve, John Ritter, 
Mary Lou Henner, Nicolette Sheridan, Julie Haggerty, Marklin Baker, and Denholm Elliott in his last performance before his death. So those are my recommendations. I know this was a long episode. I know I recommended a lot of random stuff, but I truly believe that if you liked any of these nominees, the recommendations I gave will hit the sweet spot for you. So I hope at least one of these recommendations was a little bit useful. That does it for our episode. I am sure you don't want to after this wildly long episode, but if you would like to hear more of my voice, you can check out my new podcast, which features interviews with Hunt News writers about their latest stories. It is called Hot Off the Press, and you can find it on the Hunt News website or Spotify. As always, thank you for listening. I am Hannah Rossman, and I will see you next time here on Media Matchmaker. And please, for the love of all that is holy, watch the Oscars on Sunday. I'm counting on you. Thank you.